Welcome to Books and Nachos. A podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. fiction to nonfiction, graphic novels, and more. We're here to help you find something great to read. Welcome to Books and Nachos, the Venganza Media Podcast about all things in print. I'm your host, Stuart in LA, and we've done it, guys. We've reached the end of our four-week odyssey. We've arrived at Arthur C. Clarke's 3001. In 1997, the author published A Final Odyssey, set in the millennium beyond A. Bowman, HAL 9000. Everything we experienced in three previous novels, two Hollywood movies, we're a thousand years beyond that now. Clarke is 80 years old. He's writing a full decade after he finished Odyssey 3. And it goes without saying, he's much closer to the actual year of 2001 than when he and Stanley Kubrick were imagining that year back in the 60s. Yes, a lot of what they predicted, it's turning out not to come to pass. There are no Pan Am flights to the moon base. There are no Pan Am flights. It's all gone. That company folded. There are no homicidal artificial intelligent computers watching us in hypersleep either. I'm grateful about that one. So, you know, I'm always appreciative that we have a scientist writing these books. He's using the most current data. He's looking to what researchers are finding and using that to shape his stories. That's impressive. But the task he's given himself here to present a plausible vision of human existence a thousand years from now, it's going to be more fiction than science here, right? There's no way that his space probes can tell him what 3001 is going to look like. Just as the Vikings in 1001 AD, they had lots of seafaring knowledge. They could have never predicted GPS, automobiles. There's no way to know that far out, no matter how smart you are. You can't conceive a whole millennia of technological innovation. There's too many moving parts. Frankly, it's just a relief that someone as smart as Clark thinks that humans are going to exist in a thousand years. It's nice to know. So the plausibility of his Earth is not my concern. What piques my interest in 3001 is what's going down on Europa. If you remember, Odyssey 2 concluded with Jupiter transforming into a new star, and that jump-started life on its second moon. And then, consequently, Odyssey 3 saw the icy surface of that moon, Europa, it melted into an ocean filled with new kinds of aquatic life forms. And yes, the monolith used the ghost of Dave Bowman to warn us to stay away from this. This is a petri dish experiment being conducted by aliens. Humans are not to intervene. But yes, in 2061, South African diamond miners thought that they had a score. There was a mountain that was a giant diamond. They concocted an emergency landing there. A crash, really, is what it was. 
thought about maybe they could drill. Well, that's not an option. If anyone wants to even take the risk to go dive into those waters and pull out that giant diamond, they're not going to be able to. The monolith got smart. There's now a force field all around Europa. It's physically impossible for any spacecraft, intentionally or accidentally, to penetrate to get close to the action. So we don't know a whole lot in 3001 about Europa, except what we can see from afar. We know that it's entered an amphibious age. Fish now have little arms and legs, and we can detect them crawling out of the surf and spending their days on volcanic beaches before, at night, they head back into the waters to eat. Clark describes the Europes. Don't call them Europeans. They're Europes. They're trapped between ice and fire, and that's their existence. And maybe they're going to survive, maybe there's not. There's been a lot of creatures that have died off, but these amphibians, so far, so good. Many of them kind of resemble aquatic life on Earth. There are things that are kind of like sharks. There's a close facsimile to a dolphin, but we wouldn't have been able to pick them up and drop them into our water, even if we were allowed to, because the water there is more sulfuric than oxygenated. In fact, these fish don't even even have gills. This is cool. I I can't deny, I know that Clark loves marine life. I love that he spent the time to think about what marine life on a different planet would look like. But I have to admit, as big as this evolutionary step is, they've done it a thousand times faster than life crawled out of the water on Earth. Very cool. I'm disappointed. I'm not going to hide that. I wanted people on Europa by 3001. Maybe that's an unrealistic expectation, but I wanted it. I wanted us to be able to make contact with someone that was an intellectual peer. I don't care. It could even be a primitive. It could be Moonwatcher. That would be a nice callback that, you know, once Moonwatcher was us, and now we have our own version to help out like the monolith helped us. That would have been cool with me. But no, life is still very much in its infancy here on Europa. No one is going to invite us down for a beer. No one is going to give us a hall pass to come into this forbidden ecosystem. And be that as it may, I'm disappointed. I don't think that These amphibians need to be impressing me, though. They've got a bigger concern. They're creators. Those aliens behind the monolith. Clark actually refers to them here in a prologue as the firstborn. So that's what I'm going to call them from this point forward. We still haven't seen the firstborn, but we've seen what they're capable of doing. And they are a fickle bunch, let me tell you. They'll wipe out an entire planet they've created if the inhabitants don't live up to their expectations. It's actually what happened with Jupiter. Back in 2010, you know, before it was turned into Lucifer, it was a gaseous planet that had an ecosystem of gaseous creatures. Let me read you a passage from this novel to kind of set the mood and and give you imagery. There were jet-propelled torpedoes, like the squids of the terrestrial oceans, hunting and devouring the huge gas bags. But the balloons were not defenseless. Some of them fought back with electric thunderbolts, and with clawed tentacles like kilometer-long chainsaws. There were even stranger shapes, exploiting almost every possible geometry. Bizarre, translucent kites, tetrahedrons, spheres, polyhedrons, tangles of twisted ribbons. The giant plankton of the Jovian atmosphere, they were designed to float, like gossamer in the uprising currents. Until they had lived long enough to reproduce, then they would be swept down into the depths to be carbonized and recycled, in a new generation. Sounds cool, right? I mean, if 
David actually completed his mission, and he and Hal were able to observe this back in 2001, I would not have been disappointed. I would have said, wow, that's really neat. That's life on Jupiter. But it wasn't impressive enough for the firstborns. They don't consider these creatures substantial because they are not smart enough to be more than this. They've evolved as far as they're going to. And so the comparative is made to soap bubbles. And I quote, Consciousness would never emerge here. Even if it did, it would be doomed to a stunted existence. Ouch! So the firstborn, they use their monolith machines. They turn Jupiter into Lucifer. We now find out that wasn't just about providing light for the new life on Europa. They were taking an eraser to design mistakes. They were wiping something they had made away because it wasn't good enough. These are some judgmental bitches. So the fundamental question of 3001, the final odyssey, is whether they are going to do that again. Are they going to do that with this new life form on Europa? Or, even worse, would they consider ridding the universe of human beings? This is what's going to get answered in this novel definitively. I can't say this much. Arthur C. Clarke certainly doesn't have a problem with getting rid of some human beings, because I thought Dr. Haywood Floyd was going to return as our protagonist. He had been in all three previous novels. He was there in 2001. He was the one that showed up on the moon base when they discovered the monolith there. He was the main character of 2010. He took the journey to see what happened to Hal and Dave. Hal and Dave made a carbon copy of him at the end of Odyssey 3, so he could continue on. They had decided that his knowledge was needed. They had figured out a way to make the monolith work for them. They were taking firstborn power, and they were now figuring out how to use it so that they could shape European evolution. And they thought that Haywood Floyd would have some part of that. If he did, I don't think he was as helpful as they thought he might be because he is gone at the start of this fourth novel. He does not make a single appearance as a ghost. Of course, his physical body died hundreds of years ago. Clark takes an unexpected road to produce the new main character. He's dug up Frank Poole from the Rings of Saturn. Do you even remember, Frank? Think way back to 2001. Remember, Dave had a co-pilot on the Discovery. Hal snipped his air hose. He was last seen floating away. Dave was not able to recover his body. He cynically concluded that Frank was going to be the first man of Saturn. That's true. But the surprise of 3001 is he's going to live to tell about it. I know. Incredible. I could not have seen this coming, and I immediately, just reaction of no. This, no. But take a minute and think about it. Here's how Clark sees the future. Terraforming hostile planets is going to be a big industry in the next millennium. And so we have colonies everywhere. We have colonies on Venus, which is a hostile planet being so close to the sun. It's incredibly heat. In order for us to maintain that, to make the atmosphere ultimately breathable, we have spaceships going around our solar system in the colder regions to collect ice formations and to route them back to Venus. They're called Comet Cowboys, the guys that do this. And one of these Comet Cowboys is in the rings of Saturn at the start of this novel. He sees something. He thinks it's a chunk of ice. Nope, it's Frank Poole. He's perfectly preserved at sub-freezing temperatures in space. 
He hasn't degraded. Think about it. I mean, what makes us rot, what makes us age is bacteria, is germs. There hasn't been no introduction of that perfectly frozen in space. He is essentially in cryogenic sleep, hypersleep. This is a technology that is still being researched right now. I guess Clark is giving his seal of endorsement. At first, I thought this was a little bit funny, but I recognize its necessity. I'm not sure I buy its scientific plausibility, but I realize that if we are going to be in the year 3001, it's very helpful for the reader to have a character, a guide, as it were, from the 20th century. Someone that can show us how strange the 22nd century has become. That They need to be relatable. And Haywood Floyd would not be relatable because, you know, he's a ghost or whatever he is. Uh, and a new character, they just wouldn't ask the questions we would want to know. They would come into their own age not having the curiosity that an outsider would. So you need someone who can ask the right questions. If it must be Frank, I'm cool with it being Frank Poole. What I'm less cool about is how long it takes Frank Poole to finish his mission to Jupiter. Because yes, eventually he does decide once he's revived and nursed back to health that he's got to go back there and see it. You know, he didn't even know it became a son. He wants to go see Lucifer. He wants to go see if Dave and Hal, who have been seen from time and again on the surface of Europa, maybe they will let him through the force field to have a talk. I mean, he's got an end there. And so that is going to eventually happen. But Clark is no hurry to make this happen. 3001 is only 237 pages long. Frank is not going to touch down onto the surface of Europa until the last 60 pages. And even then, only 10 pages are spent with him talking to Dave or whatever's become of Dave, the aspiring god of Europa. And Hal, keep in mind that not only is Dave there, but the ghost computer that tried to kill him a thousand years ago is also there. I think that that would be a very extensive conversation. It's less than 10 pages. So another frustration. The only thing on Europa that's willing to talk to us is reduced to a 10-minute conversation. What is 3001 about? Well, it's about how human society has flourished. I think that what Clark really wants to speak to for a majority of this novel is how we are able to survive. And most of it is very positive. As I said, when you look around the world today, you may not think we would last. You may not think we have more than a couple hundred years, maybe less than, the way things are going. Well, one of the reasons why we flourish is we take the advice of the kids on the moon base. We get away from Earth's gravity. We move off the surface of Earth. In 3001, we have built an artificial ring. It goes all the way around our planet. We now kind of look like Saturn, and it's propped up by these four towers that are built on the different continents. Frank Poole spends most of his time actually in the Africa Tower. And these structures can house more people than the surface can. We actually have a booming population. And it's one that is completely hardwired. Frank gets outfitted quickly upon waking up with a brain cap that basically we all can get to know each other much faster when we have a 
intelligent kind of computer, I'll call it like a hard drive, installed in our head. So everyone is shaved bald. Don't worry about it. They have awesome wigs in the future. So everyone still looks good, but they're able to sync up very quickly. And Frank is able to accumulate the knowledge that he missed for the last thousand years pretty quickly because of artificial intelligence integrating with human biological design. Oh, and by the way, if you're into role-playing or, you know, second-life kind of computer artificial worlds, that stuff has exploded here. A whole chapter is devoted to him chasing a dragon woman, and it's kind of silly, but uh, kind of funny. Again, I think Clark is showing a lot of enhancements to human life. What I don't like about this novel is that the enhancements are seen in contrast to how horrible things were in the 20th century. This is not a scientist that is looking to the future and just saying, it's going to be great. This is an old man who is saying the only way we're going to get to that great future is if we get beyond what's so horrible about today. And the thing that he points his finger at, well, it's going to offend a lot of people. It's religion. He believes the root cause of everything from AIDS and bubonic plague, genital mutilation, anything that has gone wrong is because we have believed in false gods. And I'm not just talking about Christianity, although that's definitely kicked around. African tribalism, even Chanja's religion, the man that designed Hal, he's taken the task for believing in a false god. The only thing we should believe in is the monolith. And that's what everyone does, that a few centuries after 2061, that original monolith that shaped Moonwatcher and the cavemen and basically kickstarted our evolution is discovered in some cave in Africa. That's why Frank Poole is hanging out in the African Tower, so that he can see these artifacts. Everyone now understands that that is our origin, and there's just no disagreement. Everyone is just cool with the idea of dropping all religious pretense. Uh, You may like that as a concept. I suspect a lot of people are going to blanch. It's a lot of this novel. I mean, a lot. It just... I can't tell you how many times it comes up. Even when Frank says an exclamation, like, oh my God, someone has to stop him and say, oh, we don't say that anymore, blah, 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 blah. It's a lot of this short novel. And quite frankly, if that's the only way we're going to get to this utopian future that he's depicting, if the only way that we all come together and give up our wars and work to heal the problems of the universe and find and build the technology that allows us to escape the harmfulness of Earth's gravitation, if the only way that that's possible is for people to give up their fundamental religious beliefs... Oh my God, we're screwed, right? That's not going to happen. I just don't see that happening unless someone can dig up a black rectangle in Africa really, really soon. I just don't think that that is an optimistic sign for the survival of our species. And speaking of which, the firstborn have decided we're not worth saving anymore. I want to remind you that When Haywood Floyd went to the moon and looked upon the monolith that was there, it emitted a shriek that was sent to the giant monolith that was orbiting around Jupiter. That was not the end of the message. It was transmitted 450 light years away to the home base of the firstborn. That was the last time the firstborn had any communication with us. So as far as they can tell, we're horrible. 
we're stuck in the 20th century with AIDS and bubonic plague and computer viruses and wars. They haven't seen how great it's gotten in the next thousand years. So we are going to get that eraser. The monolith is going to be told to wipe us out now. That signal wasn't just a message saying, hey, humans have gotten out of their earth cage. It was a report card. We got a failing grade. So basically, our only hope is for Frank Poole to work with Dave and Hal to stop the monolith from going nuclear. I mean, we don't know how it works. The one that was found in Africa, the one that was found in the moon, we've never found a way into it. We don't know how to manipulate it. The only thing that figured out the mechanics, the only thing that understands the monolith is a machine, is Hal. So Dave and Hal have to be negotiated with. And Dave doesn't really see himself as a human anymore. I mean, back in 2010, he still saw enough of his old life to go back and see his old girlfriend and his mother and he told Haywood Floyd and the Russian crew they needed to get out of the blast radius of Jupiter. He was got our back. You know, he was looking out for us. But now it's been a thousand more years. He doesn't really care whether humans get wiped out or not. He's still focused on Europa. That's his little pet project. Hal never did really. I mean, he was programmed to like humans, but we know that he has no problem wiping us out when he gets a little paranoid, gets a little cranky there. Thank goodness it's Frank Poole. I don't think there could be any other advocate. The coincidence of him being found and revived at the exact same time this is going down, if he was not found, I think we would be all wiped out. But Frank Poole has the negotiation skills to go to Europa, to be allowed through the force field, to talk to his old crewmates, to throw aside the old problems, and to work together to stop the monolith. How did they do that? Well, with computer viruses, of course. All those viruses I was talking about, they have been moved to a containment storage area on the moon. Basically, it's a receptacle for viral research, and we treat computer viruses the same way that we do Ebola. So it's on a jar in a shelf somewhere, and so I just presume that Frank is holding this jar all the way on his flight to Europa, hands it off to Dave and Hal, and they somehow upload it into the monolith, basically rendering those black rectangles inoperable. They won't replicate. They won't kill us. Now, at the end of 2061, we saw that the Jupiter sun was going to go out. I thought it was going to extinguish. That was an illusion. What we find out was that the monolith was getting ready to use that to blast us, and it had created a eclipse that cut the sun away. But long story short, Arthur C. Clarke decided 10 years later he didn't want to write it that way. That doesn't happen. Both suns are in operation. Both life on Europa and human life is in existence at the end of this novel, thanks to Frank and his uploading computer viruses. Now, you may notice a similarity between this climax and a movie that would have come out the year before. In 1996, Independence Day, big summer blockbuster, the way they stopped those invading aliens, spoiler alert, was very, very similar. Clark has something to say about that. After the novel concludes, he has lots of passages about his research and how he came to the conclusions about what life would be like in 3001. He has a lengthy diatribe about how he's never seen Independence Day. He hears it's junk. They ripped off his own 
childhood in novel, and he would never, ever, ever think to rip it off for the ending. It's just a coincidence that he came to the same conclusion that they did. So he's very insistent. This is not a ripoff. I don't care whether who ripped off who. To me, it's not a satisfying conclusion to have human existence reaching out towards God for four novels and deciding by the end of it, hey, we need to kill him because that's where we're at. At the end of this novel, it's not God is dead and it's not God is alive. It is we got to kill God. We got to man up and prepare for the fact that it's going to take the firstborn some time to notice. We think we have about a thousand years before they realize that the monoliths aren't working and they're either going to send a repair crew out here to fix them so that the monoliths can kill us or they're going to come out here and personally kick our ass. But either way, we've bought ourselves some time to prepare for that and we will be in a war in 4001 with the firstborn, with our creators. I'm not interested in that future. I like many of the ideas that Clark has foreseen for us in all four of his novels. But to me, this is no conclusion to what was begun in 2001. I don't like it. I don't necessarily recommend it unless you're a completist and you just want to know. I'm not a completist and I'm stopping here. Clark did not. He partnered with another author and into his late 80s, he wrote three more novels. He doesn't call them sequels and he frees himself of the timeline. They're no longer set in certain years, but he does have a time odyssey in which we learn apparently a lot more about the firstborn. We get a face with them finally. We see what they're doing. We see their fight to try and control evolution and the societies that they create from coming back at them. So if you're interested, those novels are out there. Why don't you send me a line on the forums? Let me know what you think of it. I am not interested in that future. But just so you know that they're out there, in 2003, Stephen Baxter and Arthur C. Clarke put out Time's Eye. It continued on to Sunstorm. Clark died the same year that the third novel, Firstborn, came out. I don't know how involved he is in any of this. It may be that they just took the concepts of the monolith and the firstborn, and that this is much more the work of the younger Stephen Baxter. Maybe I'll have a different opinion later down the road. Maybe I will come back and review that trilogy some point in Books and Nachos. That's not where I'm headed next week. I've still got a lot to read this summer, and I'm going to do it, but we're going to leave this universe for now and cover Planet of the Apes. It's been our Gold Level Donation Drive over at Sister Podcast, now playingpodcast.com. Gold Level donors this Friday are going to hear thoughts on Planet of the Apes as revised by Tim Burton. I will give you a spoiler about my opinion right now. I found that there wasn't enough setup. I have gone back and read two prequel novels to the Tim Burton Apes universe for review next week. It's going to be two books. In one show, both written by William T. Quick as mass market paperbacks. You can find them pretty easily on the internet. If you're interested in following along, it's Planet of the Apes The Fall, Planet of the Apes Colony. I'm going to cover both of those. We're going to get to the heart of what happened in Tim Burton's universe. So whether you want to read along or you just want to be spoiled because you saw the movie and felt like I did, that they didn't tell us enough, we're going to cover that next week. And then the week after that, we have Conspiracy on the Planet of the Apes. It's kind of a graphic novel that interweaves all five of the classic original Planet of the Apes stories. The Heston universe, Beneath, 
escape, conquest, and battle are all brought together in a prequel that's really about his astronaut shipmates. We learned a lot about Chuck Heston in that first movie. We're going to learn a lot about the other two in this graphic novel, Conspiracy on the Planet of the Apes. So two more novels, two more ape adventures to have here on Books and Nachos. I've already reviewed the original novel that inspired that franchise by Pierre Boulle. It's available right now. I hope you keep reading with me. I hope you follow all summer long. Next week, Planet of the Apes, The Fall, Planet of the Apes Colony. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help spread the word about our show by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. You can also find dozens more book reviews at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2014, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated.